guys. Um, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3. Ecclesiastes 3, we're going to pick back up, return to our study there. A book that is extremely uh, relevant and, and easy uh, for, for us to relate to our own experience, certainly in the things that we deal with on, on a daily basis. Uh, someone said of Ecclesiastes, uh, if you want to know what is happening these days, it's all right here. The drudgery of work, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, uh, the, the cycle and monotony of everyday life, eating, drinking, earning a paycheck, constant change and redefinition, transitions of a life, tragedies, accidents, money, sex, power, death, and sanity. Now, for the last uh, few months, we've been tracking the thoughts of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived uh, at the end of his life concerning the meaning of life. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 12, Solomon began his, uh, we refer to as his autobiography. Uh, in chapter 2, in those first 11 verses, Solomon explained how he himself tried to find meaning uh, through every type, through every um, uh, way of every type of pursuit, every, every avenue. Uh, and we do the same things uh, in our lives the culture around us is doing the very same thing, trying to find meaning in, in what we know or in what we feel or in what we experience. So through, through our experiences, uh, through what we have in materialism, through intellectualism, all these ways in which people are trying to find meaning and satisfaction. This is, this is one of the foundational spiritual truths that Solomon develops in this book. And the thing that may stand out the most in chapters 1 and 2, uh, that mankind searches for happiness and enduring substance. And Ecclesiastes presents mankind in, in light of life's uncertainties and life's brevity uh, with an invitation to enjoy life as a gift from God. So when we get to chapter 3, we find another foundational spiritual truth, if you will, that, that divine sovereignty and providence characterize our existence on planet Earth. Uh, we considered this idea uh, the last time that we were together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, where Solomon brings up the sovereignty of God, uh, the providence of God in those first uh, eight verses. Uh, he says there in verse 1 of chapter 3, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Uh, now, what are uh, some of those events or some of those activities, uh, seasons, if you will, in our lives that the plan of God encompasses? He goes on to give us a number of examples, chapter, uh, in, uh, cha beginning in verse 2 of chapter 3. He says there, a very familiar uh, passage, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate a time for war, and a time for peace. And we, 
we looked in, in detail at, at each of these sort of four, 14 pairs, if you will, of, of opposites. And I mentioned that, that the key here is to understand that these are not prescriptions, uh, but pronouncements. Uh, they're not prescriptions about, about things that we should do, but they're pronouncements about the fact that from God's perspective, He is the one who orders all aspects of a person's life and actions. That is to say, Solomon isn't telling us how to order our activities or when to perform the events that he lists uh, here in these verses. Uh, And he isn't simply describing what happens in life. He is describing what God has deliberately planned for us. He's describing these, these events as part of our existence but also making the point that the creator of all things is the controller of all things. So from that, we've talked about this in even other, other passages. Uh, life, uh, we know, is, is not, uh, not one of chance or of fate uh, because despite the random appearance of things, despite the, uh, the arbitrary appearance of things in life, God alone is in charge of both nature and, and history. So for all the affairs of life, God has set a time, and he has set, we said not just a time, but he has set, he has set the length of the time, or what we refer to as the season for everything. And he's also set the particular events along that band of time where each event is established and ordained in the providence of God. And because of all of this, everything fits, right? Everything fits. And nothing is wasted or is lost. Uh, then we looked at verses 9 to 15 where Solomon draws out uh, a number of principles, six principles for us to, to live by. There he says in verse 9, What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And so we listed these six principles. The first one was that God makes everything meaningful. God makes everything meaningful. God has made all the events and all the relationships in life. The King James Version and the ESV use the term beautiful. Uh, He's made them beautiful. It's actually a term that means uh, it could be it could be translated as beautiful. It is clearly has that reference uh, in other places in the Old Testament, specifically talking about the beauty of a particular person. Um, but it could, it's more than likely that he's talking about something that's appropriate, or something we might even say something that is fitting in in its time, in its particular time. Which means that every activity possesses its relative worth and its suitability, or its we might even say its place in God's grand providential design. Second principle, God makes every, everybody curious. God makes everybody curious. That is to say, he has made us with a desire and an ability to research and to observe and to contemplate his creation and, and our own existence. Uh, he has given all of us the capacity, if you will, to see beyond today. Uh, to have a, uh, he's given us a curiosity about the future. Uh, he has implanted, we say, in the hearts of every person 
a desire to know how the world and all of the details of our lives fit together, to, to trace all of these things out from, from the beginning until to the end. Uh, even though we said in the process of doing this, we were frustrated, right? This is my, this is my group right here. All right. You're fine, brother. You're fine. So God has given us the desire. We have this, we have this desire to, to want us to look ahead, to look back, to see the details of our lives, and to sort of begin to put the puzzle together, to figure out how all these things do fit together. And yet what we realize as we, as we try to do that is that there are some things that we can put together and we do understand, but then there's many things that, that, that are frustrating to us. And, and, and we can't connect all the dots. And honestly, that drives a lot of people crazy. And, and a lot of people spend a lot of time worrying about things because they can't, they can't find all of those answers. They can't resolve all of the, all the issues. Uh, what, that, what is that meant to do? Well, it's, it's not meant to drive us crazy. It's not meant to cause us to be anxious. It's meant to drive us to accept the fact that we're limited, right? I mean, we, we have limitations. And, and it's meant to drive us to trust the Lord uh, and to enjoy His gifts rather than worship them. <laughs> so we have these perplexities. We have these questions. We're frustrated. We get anxious about things. And then all the while, the very things that God has given to us to enjoy His good gifts, we end up fretting over things we shouldn't worry about. And we end up worshiping God's gifts rather than seeing them as gifts from His hand and enjoying them and uh, and allowing them to function in their, in their proper place. Uh, which leads us to this next principle. Principle three is God gives us many gifts. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So he says God is the one who gives us the ability to rejoice uh, and to enjoy life. Uh, he is the one who gives us the ability to do good in our lifetime, um, in the time that God has given us. And we need to be taking advantage, honestly, of, of the time that we have now. Uh, God is the one who gives us an appetite to eat and to drink. He's the one that gives us the ability to enjoy what we're drinking and eating. He is the one who gives us the ability at times to see good in all of our labor. So we labor, and then occasionally we get to see the product, right, of our labors. And there's a sense of satisfaction in that. God, God gives that to us at times as his gift. And God is the one who gives us, those who, of us who are believers, he is the one that gives us perspective to see what we could never earn and will never deserve, his Grace, forgiveness, uh, eternal life, a reason to, to press on and to persevere. Uh, principle number four, number four was God's work is perfect and enduring. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take away from it. Uh, God's work and his plan remain intact. Uh, men and women, he says, cannot add anything to God's plan or take anything away from God's plan and, and acknowledging God's enduring and perfect work becomes grounds for reverence and worship uh, and meaning. He says here, for God has so worked uh, in order that men should fear him. And this is our fifth principle, God should be feared. Uh, we consider the fear of the Lord. 
which is a, a pervasive, it's an important subject in Scripture. It's also a very broad topic. Uh, it means many things, uh, and you, you put all of those things together. It's, it's, it's certainly to know the Lord, to know the Holy One, uh, to stand in awe of God's majesty and His holiness and His wisdom, His power, His justice, and His mercy, uh, to have an uh, exalted view of God, to esteem Him, to admire Him, to honor Him, to adore and respect Him, to take refuge. We find this in the Psalms that coupled with just a knowledge of God or just uh, exalting God, it's, it's, it's fleeing to Him. It's, it's finding refuge in Him. It's trusting in Him. Uh, it's having a lowly heart and a, and a humble heart, uh, a sensitive heart. Uh, it's acknowledging that everything in life comes from God. Uh, that everything is for him, for his honor and his glory, and that everything is sustained by him. It is in the Proverbs to depart from evil. Um, to fear the Lord is to, is to flee sin. Uh, to fear the Lord is to know the ways of God and to uh, walk in them, Psalm 128, uh, to obey them, uh, to be in the constant mode of desiring in all that we do to not offend him, uh, but, to, but to please him. So God is meant to be feared. God is meant to be feared. In fact, Nehemiah 111 would encourage us to delight in fearing God, to delight in fearing Him. Uh, the final principle we, we looked at was principle number six, God keeps these lessons before us. Uh, it's interesting, verse 15, he says, that which, is, that which is has been already, and that which will be has already been, for God seeks what has passed by. Um, Honestly, there's not a commentator that I looked at that did not struggle to figure out what in the world, <laughs> how you translate this verse and, and what it means. But uh, the, the very last portion here of this uh, verse 15 could be translated as God brings back what has already passed away. In other words, God not only controls past events, he repeats them over and over until we finally understand what he wants to teach us through them. So we try to escape the, these things, uh, but God keeps bombarding us with reality, His, His created reality. Um, this, this is about the repetition of life's lessons. Uh, we learn some lesson. We say, Lord, I've got it. All right, let's move on to the next thing. But down the road, what happens? We forget, right? We forget the lesson, and, and we make some of the st- same poor choices, same, same mistakes, and we have to humbly come and say, Lord, I'm, I'm a slow learner. Please forgive me. And thankfully, God understands. He, he is prepared to have patience with us and to teach us these things time and time again until we get it right. Now, uh, some of you may have taken a, um, a course on uh, logic. Uh, all of us, as we sort of think about these next uh, couple of verses, uh, all of us are by nature... Uh, we might say syllogistic philosophers. Uh, a syllogism is, is, is a form of reasoning. It's, a, it's an argument in which you have two statements or you have two uh, premises are, are made, and, and then you draw a logical conclusions from, from those things. For example, uh, you may have a, a major premise that all mammals are warm-blooded, and then you might have a minor premise that whales are mammals, and then from that, you draw the conclusion that all whales are warm-blooded. Uh, that, that is the way that we think. Uh, and Solomon recognizes that 
if we are left to that kind of reasoning, uh, we will arrive most likely at some thoughts that are not true about God. Um, and we have to be careful here, right? I, Isaiah 55 verse 8 reminds us, For my thoughts, the Lord says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. That is to say that our wisdom outside of God's divine revelation is, is based on experience. Uh, it is limited. Uh, it is very uh, myopic or very, very short-sighted. Uh, and it is certainly influenced by our perception of reality, whereas God's wisdom uh, is perfect and infinite and certain. And so uh, last time we, we said God is, God is sovereign. In fact, Jack, Jack is going to be preaching on Isaiah 40 this morning on the sovereignty of God. But um, last time we said that, that God, is, God is sovereign over everything and that he has ordained all things but Solomon realizes that this will raise a number of questions in our minds about God. Uh, if we apply that kind of logic, if we apply that kind of reasoning, that we'll get into a lot of trouble, right? Uh, because if, if we simply say that or state that evil exists, and then we also state that God is all-powerful, then we could draw the conclusion that God must not be good. Right, because if 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 evil exists in our world, and if God is capable of doing whatever He wants, right, having the power to do that, then we could draw the wrong conclusion that God must not be good. And people do this. Uh, if we state that evil exists and that God is good, we could draw the conclusion that God must not be all powerful. And people do that as well, right? They look at the world, they say, well, evil exists, and, and, and we believe that God is loving and that we believe that God is good, but he must not be able or powerful enough to change the way things are. And, of course, both, both of those conclusions would be wrong. So we know that, that the first 15 verses of chapter 3 emphatically declare that God is absolutely sovereign. But if this is true we're left with some difficult questions, right? Why don't the good guys always come out on top? Or why does injustice seem to triumph and, and win? Uh, these are the kinds of questions or the obvious, you say, obvious objections to the supposed perfection of God's sovereignty and plan that Solomon seeks to address beginning in verse uh, 16. So we'll begin in 16. We won't finish today, but we'll, uh, between now and next Sunday, get through the rest of chapter 3. But in verse 16, he says this, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness uh, there is uh, wickedness. So what is Solomon getting at? Because he's just told us, there's a time for this and a time for that and a time for this and a time for that. And all these things are beautiful and appropriate and fitting in God's time, in his plan, in his providence. All these things fit. There's nothing wasted. And yet we have this problem with injustice. And we have this problem with wickedness and evil. So God has a wonderful plan for your life, right? <laughs> right? Right? 
I mean, I know we shy away from it. He does have a wonderful plan for your life, right? Now, sometimes we joke about that, you know, that we don't always do a great job of giving a full explanation of the gospel message that we just tell people God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and we just paint this picture that Christian life is just a bed of roses. But, but sincerely, God does have a wonderful plan, right? And God is a God of justice, right? Okay, so God does have a wonderful plan, and God is a God of justice. Yet, in the real world, the cards at times are stacked against the innocent or against the weak. And at times, even, Solomon says here, even the place of justice is unjust. And we know this, right? The legal system, uh, it was true in Solomon's day. It's true, honestly, it's, 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 always been, it's always been true, right? I mean, once you get to Genesis 3, right? I mean, it, it's injustice. I mean, that's what we find throughout the, the Old and uh, the New Testament. Legal system, corruption, courtroom marked by lack of integrity, uh, the very place where we most expect and most need to receive justice turns out to be a place of unfairness and inequity. Uh, innocent people are convicted for crimes that they never committed. Other people get away with their crimes. Uh, they have the money to hire better lawyers or they hide behind the structure of large, perhaps a large corporation. Legal loopholes abound. I mean, it just... It, when you hear of a legal case these days, it's like as much as you believe that the person is guilty, you hesitate to say emphatically, I know that they're going to get convicted. I mean, you just, it's like you're almost at this point braced for them to, to get off. Somehow, some way, you just cannot say with absolute assurance, I know how this is going to turn out. Because you've seen how things are. You've seen the system. You've seen the, the corruption. You've seen the legal maneuverings that allow the guilty to go unpunished. You've, you've seen the legal maneuverings that deny victims a sense of, of closure. Uh, and all of these things, all these forms of injustice certainly can lead to anger and frustration. Uh, and Solomon is frustrated. Uh, I think when he, he's writing this, there is, there is a frustration. But it's not simply that the injustice is committed. It's that, it's that it goes unpunished. It's, 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 um, it's not just that it exists, it's that he can't do anything to keep it from happening. He can't, he can't stop it. In fact, M- Martin Luther said this. He said, he, speaking of Solomon, is, quote, not complaining because there is wickedness in the place of justice, but because the wickedness in the place of justice cannot be corrected. <laughs> That's the frustration. It's not just that it's there, it's that you feel sometimes like you can't, you can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. This is simply the way that things are. And again, we would agree, it's, this is the way things have been in, in every generation in every land. It's interesting because some of the commentators actually that, that do not believe Solomon's the author, um, they, um, they argue for, for another author to this, this particular book. This is one of the passages they go to to actually make their case, to simply say, well, Solomon was the king. So why would he, the man who's sort of the the top guy in the land, why would he be complaining about injustice and corruption if he was himself in a place to be able to to fix it and and to correct it? And and I think we just say, well, you know, 
I mean, there, in fact, we have examples in the Old Testament of this where we have, we still have examples in the Old Testament of godly kings, but at the very same time, courts filled with men who were, who were unjust. I mean, that's a pretty big task, right? You're going to eliminate all of the injustice in the land. And not only that, but again, Solomon is not so much speaking, I think, to what's going on in the land of Israel as, as he is, this is a universal message. I think that Solomon understood that what he was writing in Ecclesiastes was going to go beyond the borders of Israel because he had influence way beyond the borders of Israel. And that's why I say there's so many things about the book of Ecclesiastes that to me are great connecting points with, peop- with unbelievers that you and I know, neighbors and people that we work with and, and unsaved family members, that Ecclesiastes has so many things that we can say... This is what Solomon said because they understand it. Because the things that Solomon is observing are things that, that all of us, I mean, unbelievers observe these things and can identify uh, with these things. So th- this is just the way that things are in, in, in every generation. And, and, the, and the struggle is people say, well, well I mean, what, what do you mean I'm supposed to accept this as from the hand of God? <laughs> Because it's in this context of God's in control. And yet he's pointing out the fact that there's injustice, even in the place where we would expect there to be justice and righteousness. And so we see it. We see the injustice. It's, it's criminal. In fact, he, he's not making light of it. He, he calls it wickedness. Um, in fact, the term that he uses here, and another form of this word, the first time it shows up in the, in the Old Testament is in Genesis 18, referring to uh, the inhabitants of Sodom. So I'm just saying, he's saying that form, that kind of wickedness, this is going on in, in the courts of, of the land. And in light of this, he's really telling us how we're supposed to navigate through these kinds of, of difficulties or to answer or to think about, how do we think about these kinds of objections? You know, how are we supposed to... I guess, come to terms with the fact that these things exist, and yet we also hold to this doctrine that God is sovereign over all things. So he gives us some great counsel here. And uh, he's really, there's really four things that I want to uh, uh, talk through, and we'll just cover two of these today, and well, I said we'll, we'll hit the, the remaining two next time. So the first thing is don't expect life to be fair. <laughs> don't expect life to be fair. The world, as we said, has been fair, unfair uh, for a, a very long time, right? I mean, it's, it is unfair. It will continue to be unfair. Um, yes, in the courts of law, there should be justice, but there's not. Um, there are, in fact, lots of things. There are lots of things that aren't right and just. People should not starve to death, but they do. Natural disasters should not occur, but they do. Abortion should not exist, but it does. Uh, Cancer should not uh, take over a person's body, but it does. Um, And so this question of why should we trust a God who is in complete control, but who allows these things to happen? And and it's as if Solomon knew that we we would have that question, that if he began to talk about how all of these events of our lives have their proper place, that those who are in the midst of being treated in an unjust way or those who are seeing this injustice all around them would ask this question in their hearts. And so his first 
sort of, if you will, piece of advice is don't be alarmed. <laughs> don't, don't be alarmed about these things. In fact, he will go on in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked. The, the, the word is, is to be dumbfounded or astounded. Don't be shocked at the sight when you see that. Uh, because Solomon is saying, we know that this is not Eden. <laughs> Hello, right? I mean, we know that. This is not the Garden of Eden. I mean, Eden is, is, a, is a term that means pleasantness, okay? Uh, the place of delight, okay? We look around us. We, we understand. We're not living in Eden anymore, right? Uh, we also, this is not heaven, right? This is not heaven. This is life on planet Earth under the curse of sin. And this world is an un fair place. So don't expect life to, to be fair, which is a difficult thing to deal with, right? I mean, let's just be honest. It's difficult. This is a, a hard thing to, to wrestle with because we want life to be fair. We, in fact, I would say that in the older we get, <laughs> the older we get, the more it seems like we want this, right? I mean, we want it bad when we're little, right? But we really want it bad as we get uh, older, in fact, I was thinking about some of the movies. You know, I don't know how many of you watch. Maybe you don't watch a lot of movies, but just some 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 movies that just man, they strike a chord when it comes to this. It's in fact, it's just you know, I think about about a Braveheart type of movie. It's it, the reason those movies like a Gladiator or a Braveheart pull us in is because it, justice. You know, it, it's what keeps us watching, right? We're t- we know how this is going to. We're hoping this is going to turn out a certain way. In fact, we would be really upset. I thought about this last night, too. There are a couple of... In fact, I could name two, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but there are a couple of movies that just bother me because they didn't end the way they should have ended. I should have written. I should have produced and directed the movies. Whoever produced and directed these movies did a horrible job because you were just left like, give me my money back. All right, I'm, 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 I'm done. You know, I don't know who would have thought of that ending. Because we, we want people to get what is coming to them, right? I mean, we would be upset, okay? We would be upset if one of the wicked stepsisters in Cinderella got the, got the, got the slipper, right? We'd be really upset. We would be really upset if uh, we found out after the fact that Robin Hood was not giving what he was taking to the poor, Right? He had some sort of mansion, like in a faraway land. He had been—he had some account, some Swiss bank account. He was stealing from the rich. He had been stocking all his this money away, and yet he was portraying himself to be a hero. He was portraying himself to be the one that was looking out for those who were being stepped on. There we go. Yeah, let's see, we'll get together. Me and you get together on this. All right. People that don't follow the rules, people that cheat, people that take advantage of the system, people that find a shortcut when we have had to go the long way around. There's something within us that longs for judicial justification. When the oppressed find no comfort from their oppressors, when the suffering find no relief from their situation or from those who who tease or persecute or hurt them, it's, it, it's something recoils inside of us. Uh, even when a situation is relatively minor, right? Like when one of your own children is mistreated. 
right? I mean, Mike, could you speak to this, brother? He, Mike's at the Christian school, but I mean, anyone that's a that's that's it's in any school, okay, <laughs> could could speak to this, having to deal with kids, but also expectations of parents, right? I mean, the, your kid gets mistreated, and that. Oh, parents boil, right? Maybe it's maybe it's someone at school. Sometimes it could be just an inf- a form of injustice on a sports team, right? Your kids are on some sports team and, and they don't, they're not getting to play as, as much as other kids, or or the coach said something or did something, and 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 this 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 bubbles up. Uh, as a parent, we think I, I cannot believe it's it's like we're shocked. It's, I can't believe this would happen. This has to be fixed. It has to be fixed right now. So justice is one of those deep longings of the human heart. Uh, it starts when we're young with things like, hey, that's not fair. You know, uh, you want to find out if, if your kids are, which ones are going to be really, really legalistic. You know, it's, it's the games. It's the board games. You know, I mean, when it, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, <laughs> the rigidity, you know, like, you, you, that is not, we're getting the book out. We are reading this. In fact, I don't know about you, but it, sometimes that's the frustra- most frustrating thing is you're playing a game and then, you know, and sometimes you adapt the rules. I mean, not, not intentionally, it's just you, but you've played it a long time or maybe there's a way that you played it and then all of a sudden somebody challenges that. Hey, that's not, that's not the rules. We've got to get this out. Um, it's frustrating. By the way, we played a game. What was that game we played? Quelf? Don't ever play that game. <laughs> Quelf, okay? Quelf, that, that is, um, that's what, that, they need to make people in the penitentiary play <laughs> Quelf once a day. Um, it, was pain, it was painful. It was painful. Um, so, you know, it, and just to be clear here, when we say, don't expect life to be fair. What we don't mean by that is injustice and oppression are no big deal. And we're not just saying just get over it. We're not saying that. In fact, this is an issue in which God does choose sides. I mean, this is not, God's not uh, waffling on the issue of injustice or oppression. Uh, God is not on the side of injustice. Uh, God stands against injustice with all of his power. Amos preached against those who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Ezekiel warned about extortion and stealing from foreigners. Zechariah even listed the people who were most likely to be oppressed, the widows, the orphans, people that were traveling, the poor. Zechariah 7, 9, thus has said the Lord of, the Lord of hosts, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the, or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And it's not just words and actions that bring oppression, but legislation. Uh, Isaiah pronounced God's woe against those who enacted laws and promoted injustice. Isaiah 10.1, woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. So this, this isn't some, sort, uh, some, some kind of insignificant issue or something that we should just accept, but it is something 
Solomon, I think, encourages us that we should expect in a fallen world. Uh, this is a universal problem. This is, uh, this is life under the sun. This is what life is like. Uh, we should expect there to be corruption. <laughs> we should expect there to be deceit and power plays and abuse. And these things should stir something within us. Uh, like Solomon, who, who I think had an intense uh, emotional response to both groups of people, to the recipients of injustice and to the perpetrators or the inflictors of injustice, who responded to the plight of the oppressed with lamentation and grief and who responded to their oppressors with indignation. But again, what Solomon mostly felt was frustration. Frustration that he could not bring an end to the oppression. So the first principle for us is to help us navigate through life and these issues is to not expect life to be fair. Um, the second one, and we'll just pick up here next time, is to know that the justice of God will eventually prevail. So we're to expect that life isn't fair, but we're also to be confident that the justice of God will eventually prevail. He mentions this in verse verse 17 and we'll come back and we'll talk about because this this is next time because this is the this is the culminating issue of Solomon's appointed time discussion. He's talked about all these things have their proper place and in this discussion of God and his these events, these activities, and these seasons, and the fact that God has appointed these things, this is sort of that culminating issue of that discussion, that there is a time for judgment. And basically what Solomon does here is he takes a principle that he teaches in the early part of the chapter, and he just applies it to the issue of injustice. And says, if it is true that God has all these things in their proper place, and if God is a God of justice then this is not about God's ability, His power, and it's not about His goodness. We're not questioning His goodness. We're not questioning His power. What we're recognizing is that because God is sovereign and because God providentially plans all of these things out, then what must be true is that there is also a time appointed by God for justice. It may be in the near future. It may be today. Or it may be when men and women stand before God himself and face judgment. But God will judge, and we'll talk about the certainty of that uh, next week.